Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dead Pundit Society for this week. We are back from a little bit of a hiatus. I took an unplanned hiatus over the past several weeks. Apologies for that. Uh, Most of you will know by now that DPS lost two people who were very, very dear to this program. Of course, I'm talking about Leo Panich and Ed Rooksby. They were casualties of COVID-19, and it hit me personally very, very hard. These were people who I leaned on quite heavily for the inspiration, the motivation, the guidance, the sort of theoretical and strategic orientation of this program, and I had originally planned to plow ahead in their memory, in their honor, Uh, but I'll just say that uh, I think uh, the grief caught up with me. So I needed some time off to kind of process that and just step away from politics for a little while to clear my head. But we're back. And today's episode is a really excellent place to kick off this next round of DPS because we've got Brad Chester. He's a member of the Collective Power Network inside of DSA. That is, of course, a caucus in the Democratic Socialists of America. He's going to be talking about their vision for socialism in America. And how to achieve that, particularly with respect to electoral politics and the organizational apparatus of the DSA. This is a very fascinating episode. I don't want you all to get lost in the inside baseball DSA stuff because really once we get past that, this is an episode on socialist strategy in the United States today. And uh, it's it's uh, he opens with some counterfactuals as to why having an independent workers party might be an impediment to socialist advance in the United States. Now, there's a counterfactual for you, something to marinate on. We're going to talk about that um, extensively in the upcoming interview. I've got some exciting interviews lined up as well for the very near future for the upcoming weeks. I'm going to be talking with James Schneider, who is a Labor Party socialist activist over there in the UK. He wrote and published a phenomenal series for Novara Media, our friends over there. It's called How We Win. He covers many, many aspects, of course, taking on the state, the media. Of course, the internationalism piece is there as well. He talks about the party, in particular, building a socialist labor party in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn. He talks about our orientation to the movements. It's a socialist strategy for the 2020s. It was inspired by none other than Leo Panich. James and Leo were close. Uh, Leo basically challenged James to write up such a series, to think about what it looks like for our generation, James being, of course, in my generation, going forward, building socialism in a holistic way. And so I'm really excited to have James on the program to talk about that series because this is very much DPS bread and butter stuff. Um, I've got an interview coming up, a follow-up interview, I should say, with Sam Gendon. Uh, We're going to be building on some of the themes that we talked about during his last appearance here on the show. In particular, what went wrong and what exactly happened and transpired in the 1970s. A recent episode of The Vast Majority, hosted by a friend of the show, Micah Utrecht, it's a Jacobin podcast, inspired me to invite Sam to come back on the program to challenge some of the things that they said. Some of the formulations, some of their frameworks of the 1970s. Of course, Micah had on Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House to talk about Rick Perlstein's Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. 
And they lean quite heavily on an overtly political and cultural explanation of the failures of the 1970s, which of course led to neoliberalism. And I wanted to have Sam Ginnon back on to talk about a more political economic approach to understanding the failures of the socialist movement and, of course, uh, democratic socialism in general, social democracy in the 1970s and that downturn, which then, of course, uh, gave unto us neoliberalism and the hellscape that we found ourselves in over the past 35 to 40 years. So uh, we're going to have some kind of fun back and forth here, laying down some diss tracks. No, it's a friendly diss tracks. We want to ha- we want to start the dialogue and kind of keep things going a little bit because it's my understanding that Micah over there at the vast majority is going to be leaning into Rick Perlstein's writings. Rick, of course, is a fascinating guy. He is not a socialist. He's a liberal. And as such, he leans on, by my estimation, a highly culturalist understanding of the 1970s and beyond. And I'm going to lay that out. You're going to say, Adam, what does that mean? Culturalism. Well, that's going to be part of the episode, folks. So everybody tune in to my follow-up with Sam Ginnon. Always an absolute pleasure to have Sam on the podcast. So enough out of me. Let's get to the interview with Brad Chester. As always, this podcast is free to listen to. It is not free to make. So if you like what we're doing over here on DPS and you want to keep this thing going into the long haul, I implore you to head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. As Brad and I will be talking about extensively over the course of the interview, we have to build up socialist institutions. And like it or not, this year podcast comprises one of the key institutions in the socialist media ecosystem. So uh, if you want to support those institutions and spread political education and uh, debates and all the rest of it, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits. All right. Enjoy the interview. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of This American Left. It is a uh, not very NPR style, but NPR style approach to analyzing some of the aspects of the left that go unremarked upon, certainly in the left podcast sphere. A lot of these discussions and debates happen behind closed doors or on Twitter or in caucus meetings or in DSA conventions that only happen twice a year. And my aim with this series is to continue to bring some of those discussions out into the open and to give you all some opportunity to be in on those things as though you were a fly on the wall. And so joining me today, we're going to continue that series and I think it's going to be fun. We've got a member from Collective Power Network who has written a piece for their online outlet called DSA Organizer. It's The Organizer. Brad Chester, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you? So uh, give give the listeners some background about yourself. You have a very extensive organizing background, and I think that definitely plays into your outlook here. So let's start there. Yeah. So starting in 2017, I've been working full-time in electoral organizing. I worked for the not-socialist, but historical nonetheless, Danica Rome campaign here in Virginia, the first out trans member of a, a state legislator who has, you know, thankfully been joined by multiple others in the time since. And from there on, I worked for Vaughn Stewart, DSA member who is now a member of the House of Delegates in Maryland, and multiple other campaigns all across the country, culminating in most recently a state Senate race in Washington, and before that, 
a stint of about six months with the Bernie Sanders campaign in Iowa, Michigan, and Ohio. Excellent. So tell us about your history in DSA. It might seem a little uh, counterintuitive, at least certainly a a few, several years ago, it would have seemed counterintuitive to have an open <laughs> socialist who was so committed to electoral politics. So what's your, what's your background with DSA and, and as an organized socialist? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I'm kind of happy that that fight seems to be settled for a little while, at least uh, that socialists should engage in electoral politics. My first DSA meeting, in fact, was with the Metro DC chapter with our, our former electoral caucus um, that was started in the wake of the Lee Carter race in Virginia. And, you know, kind of started that caucus to help facilitate socialists engaging in electoral races around the country. So, yeah, since then have been worked on several uh, Metro DC DSA endorsed races, several progressive races in general, and kind of bounced back and forth on both sides of the uh, the firewall um, of, of working with uh, folks within the chapter and then also working as as staff and, and balancing that. But yeah, I mean, my my involvement with DSA uh, has been primarily on the the electoral side, but I've also, uh, as you mentioned, been a, a founding member of the Collective Power Network back when we were just eleven people sitting around a kitchen table in uh, in Petworth, mm-hmm. and uh, have now grown uh, to Petworth. be a uh, I, <laughs> I miss I miss late nights uh, after the bar in Petworth. Yeah, too late doing too much silly shenanigans. <laughs> Absolutely, a, uh, a central stop on the uh, the the socialist couch surfing network of the East Coast is uh, is there in Petworth. That's right. Um, but so, uh, so let's let's talk about CPN. Yeah. It, it came up. Um, it was a little bit. I don't want to call it a latecomer. It was like the, what the second generation of the latest wave of caucuses. Of course, the first being like you know the the early momentum back in the twenty seventeen days, the mm-hmm. salad days of DC of, of the of contemporary DSA, if you will. And you know, there's a there's been a second wave of you know, some, some failed attempts, some um, aborted attempts, but now we have uh, a pretty, you know, solidified, stable configuration, conflagration, ecosystem, if you will, of caucuses, CPN being among one of the most important ones and influential ones in terms of trying to put forward a, a vision for the kind of organizational aspiration, certainly. I don't want to speak for you all, mm-hmm. uh, but it seems like you guys are very interested in the kind of structure, the the apparatuses, the organizational makeup of DSA. I, I'm not sure if you're empowered to do so, but give us a quick little elevator speech about what CPN stands for and kind of why you guys exist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, off, off mic, you kind of mentioned the question of why caucuses and, and where yeah. I think that we stick out is CPN was a platform before it was a caucus. Going into the the 2019 convention in Atlanta, we were organized around a bunch of set principles, and we got very many of those, except for the regional organizations piece, passed that all referred to internal organizing of DSA. And so at that convention, we kind of, you know, we got what we wanted passed, but we didn't get the the mandate to kind of implement it. Uh, we do have, have one um, NPC member, Blanca who is a, a CPN member, but she's kind of been alone and we've really wanted to uh, to coalesce into a formal caucus because it just became clear that caucus membership is what gives NPC members their their kind of oomph and their ability to, uh, to get things done and do offshore things. And so things that we push for, like the Growth and Development Committee to, to do our 100K drive, We've been we've been able to lean on caucus members to really uh, get that off the ground and, and get that going. 
but yeah, I guess in, in you know, in, in as many words, what we stand for is a organized, centralized, hierarchical DSA that supports chapters of every size, that supports people who are at large members uh, and, and not organizing chapters currently. And um, that is strong enough and powerful enough to leverage the weight of our now almost 100,000 member organization, maybe even, you know, 100,000 members by the time this airs, to to affect change and, and make socialism happen in America. And so, yeah, that's that's basically what we stand for. Nice. Remember when DSA hit 25 and everybody was freaking out? That was <laughs> right. <laughs> that was yep. cute, wasn't it? Uh, but anyway, no, I mean, you know, that was really interesting and I appreciate it. It's one of the reasons I've, I brought you on and I'm bringing other members of caucuses on and this is a, in the lead up. We're really in the warm up phases of mm-hmm. the pre-convention period. You know, we've got a convention coming up in what, uh, a little over a year. What's the timeline on that? Yeah, I believe it should be August of this year. Yeah. So we're going to come, it's, it's coming up here. It's going to be, you know, when does that pre-convention period really kind of start in earnest when, you know, officially, formally as an organization? Yeah, I believe the the window to start um, submitting stuff uh, opens in March, um, and so you know that that is where we kind of hit that yeah. that lead up period and that rev up. It's wild. I mean, I, I mean, I I say like it's it's coming up in within the year. I mean, really sooner. That's like six months away. I mean, my God. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I I, I suspect we're going to be hearing a lot more about this the the rev up. And, um, I want to open up the, I want to break down the walls, break down the gates, the, the barriers. And, and a lot of this isn't, you know, I go hard on caucuses on Twitter because I like to say unpopular things on Twitter because I think it makes people think it helps me yeah. to think. And something that you've said just now was really interesting because, you know, my question is like, why caucuses? Mm-hmm. Why do they exist? Do, are they here just to divide people who might otherwise be like-minded and could possibly be working together? But you you broke up you broke out a very interesting kind of uh, structural organizational component to caucuses, which is that when you get your a member of your caucus into the national leadership, they have an agenda. They have projects they would like to to pursue, obviously, as part of that agenda, and they need foot soldiers. And what better way to have somebody volunteer as a foot soldier than to have an active, organized caucus? to, to, to help you carry out, you know, that part of your agenda. And so that's interesting. You know, I'm gonna have to marinate on that. It's, it's really, you're <laughs> you, Brad, you're making me look like a jackass is what I'm saying. No, I mean to, no, no, not at all. Not at all. This is, but th- this is why I asked the questions. A lot of people yeah. assume that I have like hardened fast opinions. I change my opinions constantly based on yeah. what I'm seeing. And so, as you know, I'm looking for counterfactuals and that is an interesting one and in that it's based on a limitation of the absence of those organizational networks. But given that we live in an imperfect universe and we don't have yeah. those networks in place right now, you do need foot soldiers to carry out your agenda. Now, in a perfect organization, you would have those uh, – that apparatus would already be somewhat yeah. intact and somewhat organized and you'd have um, – standard operating procedures and all these other kind of like, right. you know, bullshit corporate speak sort of things in place to carry out agendas. Um, it's right. just a matter of organizational efficiency and effectiveness, but we don't have that right now. Right. So talk to me. I mean, is that, that, that's interesting. You're kind of blowing my mind here in, in, a, in a way that I was hoping would happen in this episode. And so tell me more about that. Tell me more about how caucuses help to support their, their members and national leadership and, and elsewhere across the organization in such a way that, you know, may hopefully one day become superfluous given a, a more kind of um, active and able organization. 
Right. And this, this is probably something that we, you know, maybe the more experienced people in CPN knew going into Atlanta, but that I certainly learned after Atlanta was at convention, everybody is going to pass a bunch of stuff that, that feels good and sounds good. And we recognize that, you know, that comes to, all right, then if we want to do all of this, the operating budget of DSA needs to be $14 million. And we need to, <laughs> to have, you know, a staff of, 500 people and, and, and things like that to get that done. So a lot of it does come down to, to discretion and, you know, having uh, experienced organizers who are not in staff roles or in elective leadership who can take things on. And, you know, I, I mentioned the growth and development committee, the international committee is an, another one of these places that, that CPN has really flexed a lot of our muscles, so to speak it prior to the 2019 convention and prior to CPN's involvement on the international committee. We had a lot of foreign policy takes that, that were pretty out of step with what I think the, the average member believes, and, and that we're certainly not expressing solidarity with socialist movements, particularly in Latin America, but around the globe. And so now the International Committee is made up more of a lot of these people who are unpaid, not elected to national leadership that have really brought it more in line with solidarity with Moss in Bolivia, with all of these other socialist movements that have been under attack by, among other people, the, the U.S. government. Um, and, and Twitter leftists, by the way. But Yes, and the holier-than-thou crowd. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Filthy but, statist, uh, f- a phony wannabe socialist that they are. Uh, in mass, yeah. by the yeah. way, under threat by a fascist. Uh, Absolutely. Um, but yeah, but, but, but yeah, I mean, to, to, to your point that, um, you know, it, it, it requires a lot of people to, uh, to enact these agendas. And unfortunately, you know, we're just not at a place where you can have a staff of 500 or an operating budget of $14 million or, or any of these things that's necessary. And so, you know, organizing that way and, and to, to the, the, the point that you were talking about as well, like, you know, we do need bigger and better inter- intermediate structures between the caucus uh, between the member level, if you're an at-large member, you're not in an organized caucus, and the national leadership that, that don't exist now. And and part of what CPN existed to do is is create those intermediate structures. And that's just, you know, been a been a fight that we're we're working on and and hopefully, you know, going to to, to come out ahead on. It is, you know, I mean, I, I always start kind of in the weeds and then we'll peel back. I, I swear we're going to talk about uh, the essay that you wrote for the organizer <laughs> that I brought you on to talk about. But, uh, but you know, I, 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 this, I, you know, this is why I ask questions that are unpopular and make people angry with me is because I do think it's only when you sort of put the entire enterprise, when you question the entire enterprise, that you mm-hmm. really get to the heart the, of, of why it, it exists and why it ought, maybe ought to exist or ought not, or, you know, or, or how, how it came about in an imperfect universe that we live in, you know? And so this is interesting. I like this. Um, we're, we're going places anyway. I think my method, if, if it, you know, if, if it uh, doesn't succeed in making everybody love me, I think it's effective. And in, in, in this case, we're, we're putting something together. I think it's really interesting in terms of, you know, producing these um, temporary, but important intermediary institutions and connections and, and capacities. That's a word that I steal yeah. from uh, my mentor, Leo Panich, uh, RIP to the King. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a word he uses to think through like, you know, a socialist, what was the capacities of any socialist state? And capacity is this interesting combination. It's a dialectical inter, uh, intertwinement of structure and agency. 
mm-hmm. right? And and you can you can proclaim anything you want from the mountaintop if you don't have the organizational institutional capacity. Right. Uh, you're not going to be able to do it. It doesn't matter how many heroic individuals are there. It's not a matter of willpower or capitulation. It's the ability to do it and not mm-hmm. be fucked with, to have the resources and to not be thwarted by your your enemies and, and to have the power to overcome uh, any challenges in your way. Um, it's a it's a complicated thing. So this is interesting. This is interesting. Let's get to your piece explicitly because this is uh, you know one of the big things we're going to be talking about going forward, I think, into 2022. In the, uh, geez, the much, I don't know what we call this, this midterm election that's that's going to uh, perhaps be disastrous yep. for, I don't know, call it humane society. I certainly don't want to say the socialist movement because I think the mainstream Democrats are going to eat the most shit. But for the more humane aspects of society are going to lose out potentially big in 2022. And so questions of like what we, what passes as the dirty break, uh, the third party push that's kind of been back on the airwaves uh, lately. And I thought we were over this kind of um, green party, third partyism that prevailed in a kind of cynical way. At least I think so. Uh, I won't commit you to that uh, belief, but I've said so myself and I argue with very smart and passionate, experienced socialists that that movement is a dead end in many, many, many ways, even more so than the Democratic Party being a dead end. And so your piece speaks to this explicitly. It's called Breaking Bad, How Obsession with an Independent Workers' Party Hurts the Socialist Electoral Project. Now, that if that's not like one of those like uh, thought-provoking kind of, oh, wait a minute, you know? Uh, it's like, you know, you're, you're scrolling the internet and you see like 10 ways to use eggs that you never thought of. And you're like, oh, I got to click on that shit. You know, it's like one of those, you know. For, for one weird trick, yeah. One, wait till you find out what happens next. It's like, you know, there's a twist here. Uh, wait a minute. An Independent Workers' Party is going to hurt the socialist electoral pro- what are you talking about this is is a, it's a thought provoking thesis what led you to write a piece like this T- talk to me about the context that you were seeking to address yeah it it basically arrived during a a conversation um with another cpn member jonah from sacramento uh and we were talking about the two articles that i cite from the bread and roses caucus by Nick French and Jeremy Gong, and then by Jane Slaughter, that it came to pass that we were talking about, like, I I think that a lot of people get confused about what ballot lines and and the nature of American electoral parties is right now. And and I think, you know, it's easier for socialists to think of party in in a Marxist sense. And, and, you know, it's a membership organization with with a constituency that is fighting for particular material gains on behalf of the constituency that it represents. And that is far from what the Democratic Party or even the Republican Party manifests as today. And Jonah just said, you know, hey, Brad, you, you do elections, you know, you know, this stuff backwards and forwards. You know, you should write an, just a short explainer about what a ballot line is uh, in America today. And, you know, as anybody who's opened the piece knows that this uh, is certainly not a short explainer. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, but it really grew from that that central um, question of, you know, making sure that we're, we're all centered on what the actual reality is today, that we're not trying to lean into the the theoretical formulations of the dirty break of, of the clean break of, you know, kind of the things that have been part of the American Trotskyist movement for, for a very long time. I guess dirty break, you know, just for the past 10 years or so. 
but uh, but then we're talking about what is reality as it exists today and how do we shape that reality towards us. Yeah. I mean, it's not for nothing that I'm having you on to talk about this. You know, um, f- first and foremost, I'll just say it. I mean, again, if, if anybody thinks, you know, shots fired by DPS, no. Like, I, I, I've, uh, I, I'm I've, not sure. I have banked a lot of interviews over the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so for the listeners, this might be uh, somewhat unprofessional or whatever, lazy, but I don't know if you will have heard them yet or not. Maybe you've already enjoyed these episodes. <laughs> maybe they're maybe they're soon to come in following weeks, but yeah, I've, I've talked with Mikey Utrecht. I've, I've spoken yeah. with Eric Blanc, the, the sort of uh, reinventor of the quote, dirty break strategy. Right. While we didn't talk about, you know, bread and roses, you know, sort of uh, perspective, you know, um, orientation to dirty break with, re- re- you know, in relationship to the DSA convention or whatever. It was a much more kind of historical theoretical conversation about looking to the formation of the British Labor Party. These people, you know, are are all over the place. And, you know, it wasn't, but, you know, maybe a year or two ago when I would just sort of throw out dirty break myself as just sort of a catch-all way of understanding our orientation to the Democratic Party. And it wasn't until uh, Dustin Guastella came on the show and was like, whoa, 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 what do you mean when you say that? And I was like, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a stand-in. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a placeholder for something that we'll have at some point in time, uh, you know, represented our orientation to our party system. And anyway, so it's not for nothing that I'm having you on to talk about all these things, but episode one of DPS, to take people way back to 2016-17, was with Seth Ackerman to yeah. talk about his party of a new type. And so this has been a through line in DPS uh, since day one. And Seth's piece, you know, you think your piece is long, geez. And and, <laughs> and, and Dustin's piece. Uh, yeah. it, you know, these pieces are not short, folks. Election and ballot line law is in history is not a short story. Uh, yeah. But uh, this stuff is important. Enough of a wind up out of me. Talk to me about the, the let's go in talk, let's talk about the problems of conceptualizing things in a, in a vague i'm going to call it a vaguely trotskyist uh, orientation to the democratic party that we have inherited over the past 50 to 60 some odd years yeah um i think that that my piece kind of boils down to two fundamental things the first is that the ballot line is not the sole and exclusive property of the democratic party in fact, they don't have any impact on, on who is allowed to run on their ballot line at all. Uh, when we talk about what constitutes the Democratic Party, what, what, what people will often refer to is the DNC itself or, or, or you know, the more experienced people will also talk about the, the network of consultants and donors and, and think tanks and things like that um, that constitute the ecosystem around the DNC. But the important thing to us is who is running on and winning in most often democratic primaries. That's where our most prominent gains have been. You know, we've, we've, we've done very well um, in Chicago, for example, on, on nonpartisan ballot lines as well, but our, our, you know, our top gains, if we want to really capture and wield any amount of power in this country um, have come through democratic primaries. And there is no way for the Democratic Party, as it as it is constituted at the local, state, even national level, to boot somebody from a ballot line. There are are you know they can challenge signatures and, and things like that, but as long as we have done the work to make our candidate eligible for office, the only people that we interact with in order to run for office are you know the the state clerk. I use Virginia. I'm a Virginian, so I use you know Virginia as an example in the piece. There are 95 counties and 38 independent cities, and 
it is employees of those counties and cities, not the Democratic Party of Virginia that we interact with in order to, to run for office. And and we never need permission of the, the chair of the Democratic Party of Virginia. We never need, you know, the approval of the congressional uh, committee or, or anything like that. Um, we can, you know, there's not a, a meaningful barrier in that sense. And as, you know, recent history bears out, running in those primaries is really good for us. And, and we, we, we can often defeat out of touch and uh, the Bowman race in New York, for example, you know, somebody who has ceased to have the mandate of their voters, you know, we can win those voters. Not everybody who voted for Jamal Bowman is a socialist, but, you know, there aren't enough organized socialists to capture state power through an election in America. And part of what I go on to say is that the propaganda factor of running open socialists is like, like, that is a good thing. And like, we can't argue against getting the the word and the ideas out there. But we're in a position now where we can actually do that and win. And, you know, the, the propaganda value of remember that really cool socialist guy who ran for office is much weaker than the propaganda value of remember that really cool socialist guy who ran for office won and then capped insulin prices or, or has a bullet, you know, uh, and is well known to hundreds of millions of Americans and beyond. And so, I mean, one thing I want to sort of, I I want two things. Number one, it's important, you know, that like, this isn't a, this isn't a question of settling old scores or deciding who was right in 2017 or what have you. It's that, you know, the benefit of this is to take this in perspective the broader context is that we now have two, three plus years of experience to reflect on. And we ought to do that. <laughs> you know, we right. ought to do that. You know, the Bernie wave has, has, uh, I don't want crashed his way to, um, histrionic. It has, uh, it is, you know, it ebbs and flows. It's in the process of flow right now, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did I get that right? Wax on, wax off, whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so it's time to assess. That's what all, movements ought to do is we need to assess and sort of figure right. out what's working, what's not working rather than sort of settling old, you know, historical tendency based scores about the, you know, whatever kind of um, easy formulation and slogan and mantra you have about the left's orientation, the democratic party, whether it's the graveyard of social movements, whether it's, you know, we've heard them all and there's those things are, you know, those things persist because they're always half true, aren't they? And we always have to acknowledge right. that. And we do. But the question then for me is what's what, and this is this, these are good problems to have, Brad. (laughs) It means (laughs) that we've had more success in the past two to three years than we've had, you know, in, in, in many decades before since. And so that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is I want to be sure, you know, as I'm doing this, this American, this, this American left series, I missed my Terry Gross voice opportunity there. (laughs) Uh, This American left. I want to be sure that I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. And so, you know, let's, let's dig into exactly what people are saying and exactly what they aren't saying. And it seems you're, you have two sort of adversaries here as all good, you know, pointed pieces should. Your first adversary are the kind of ultra lefts, at least. And that's my, that's my uh, formulation, not yours. You don't have to take responsibility for that, but ultra lefts who take a sort of third partiest approach the sort of like, you know, we need to separate ourselves from Democrats, you know, yesterday. Right. Um, right. Yada, yada. We, we know that we know that, uh, that spiel. I trust that not many of those people are listening to me anymore. They used to not anymore. Good. They've got, they've got their own podcast. That's the may, may a thousand <laughs> socialist podcast. Balloon. 
Then the other group is, of course, is Bread Roses. It's the, it's our friends that you know I have on the show quite regularly, and no animosity intended. But let's let's have this debate about what is it about the dirty break? What is it about their insistence that we need to have people run as open open socialists, perhaps aspire in the somewhat near future to be open socialists? Because as of right now, let's say March, whatever it is today, twenty twenty one, there isn't a whole lot of difference that I can perceive between bread and roses and CPN about how we ought to orient today. The question is, how do we get to where we want to go? It, 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 first of all, is that correct? Is my, and, and secondly, spell that out for us, assuming it is. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if, if, if we were all to vote on, say there are a slate of endorsements that are coming up to vote right now, and you had, you know, the quintessence of CPN and the quintessence of, of bread and roses voting on that slate, that slate would look very similar. It, it may be even identical, as you note. But what Jane Slaughter talks a lot about in her piece is that, you know, even if that's the case, we need to maintain this orientation to an eventual break and French and Gong go on to pin that break in the very near future. They use 2030. It was a piece that came out uh, last year. So about a decade is the, uh, the pinning that they use. And so, yeah, so while, while things look very close right now, it's, it's the eventual orientation that I think is, is where we differ. And, you know, this, this can be called the, the narcissism of, of small differences. But I think that, that your organizing takes a different shape when you are teleological, where you have an end in mind versus where you're agnostic about the end, which is what we advocate for. Or perhaps like emergent. I guess that's the the dualism there. You sort of uh, ends focused versus having an emergent outlook, which is a more dialectical way of sort of like, I don't know where we're going to end up, but we're building the capacities today that we're going to use tomorrow in order to do something differently. Absolutely. And again, you know, I wish we could have Jane on the show. Jane is a, she's an editor in the editorial collective over there at, um, at Labor Notes. She's mm-hmm. a long experienced veteran organizer, socialist, Absolutely, labor yeah. activist. And so not, not again, I just want to be, as we build up into conventions, so sort of breaking down the walls between the caucuses is also just being sure that we're not, you know, m- maligning anyone or, and I don't want anybody to think I'm taking sides or thumbing the scale. Not that I have mm-hmm. that kind of power, Lord knows I do not, but, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about it though. I mean, let's let's dive in in a way that I, you know, sadly, I don't see anybody else doing. And you know, it wasn't that you know, to, the lead up to twenty seventeen, Chapo fucking trap house had you know uh, representatives from the the uh, vying caucuses, right? You know, and who's still you know, I'll, I'll pat myself on the back here a little bit. Who still is doing this? Mm-hmm. I mean, almost nobody, and almost nobody who's been around who has a listenership. And so that's kind of why I think it's important. I've had falling outs with some old friends and people who, you know, are, are close to the socialist media, you know, enterprise. And so sort of say, Adam, that's inside baseball. You're boring people. We need to be a mass movement. We need to be like broadly interesting to a lot of people. We can't just talk about DSA all the time. And it's like, yeah, but somebody needs to talk about DSA all the time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We can't all just have Naomi Klein on every other week. And no right. disrespect to anybody who wants to focus on the kind of more mass left kind of progressive enterprise but it's my estimation i'm not going to ask you to co-sign this that the the discourse around dsa has um it's it's been worse for the wear uh, over that transformation and so let's bring it back let's get let's get you on chapo let's get you on the big <laughs> let's have people talking about these differences because again i think the issue 
isn't so much that you and Bread and Roses disagree as much as the I want to say that I want to say the the 10-year strategy is let's say under theorized. Yeah. Um I'm not even going to say what's right or what's wrong, but I'll happily say that something is under theorized. So the so let's let's break down some of your sort of key arguments about how we ought to comport ourselves inside the Democratic Party. Because, you know, let's just get it out right now. Nancy Pelosi, bad. Chuck Schumer, bad. You know, mm-hmm. establishment Democrats leaning on, you know, billionaire wealthy donors in Silicon Valley and Wall Street, bad, right? Like, okay, we've, we've done the catechism. <laughs> How do you suggest that we orient ourselves inside and outside the party with, with all of that badness that, uh, you know, suffuses? Yeah, and, and, and the, the one thing that I would quibble on there and, you know, we're far from the first person to do it, but, but talking about the orientation uh, as inside and outside the party I think perpetuates this idea that like by running on a democratic ballot line, like we are sacrificing our identity as as socialists or as, as independent thinkers and capitulating to the democratic party. Like, you know, as, as as I talked about in the pieces I talked about earlier, there, there's not a requirement of, you know, nobody has to kiss the ring in order to, to, to run on the, the democratic party ballot line. Cuomo so, might put a hit out on you, but aside from that, Lawrence, <laughs> if you could survive a couple assassins bullets, you can definitely run in New York State as a uh, insurgent Democratic. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's a that's a, I, I like that you did that. I do uh, yeah. because you're right. Uh, the, ling- the language and the way we frame things really matters. And when you say inside and outside the party, it really betrays an insight that that I've had a lot of guests uh, share on my uh, on my platform about the fact that the you know, Democratic Party is not a party as such. Right. As, as we think of parties and certainly not in a parliamentary system or or even just an yeah. organization or institution. Um, it's like Swiss cheese, as scholar Adam Hilton like mm-hmm. has called it on this program multiple times. Uh, so, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And, and that's something, you know, you mentioned having uh, Eric on to talk about his, his piece on the British Labor Party. You know, that, that's something that he goes into a lot because, you know, they they have much more uh, party in, in the sense that we would you know talk about a party uh, in the UK and, and, you know, the formation of, of the Labour Party comes from that. Whereas, you know, with the Democratic Party, it, it you know, it is functionally a, a, a ballot line. And, you know, the, the, and in the section of the piece, you know, the, the where I talk about the, the soft power of, of party establishments, you know, I, I, I talk about all of the things that do constitute how the party can, can express power. And that's the donors, campaign committees, uh, Nebraska too, for example, um, Kerry Eastman really found out how the, the, the absence of party help can itself be a way to, to really, uh, to really derail a, a campaign, you know, especially given that, that the prior Democrat who held that seat in, in Nebraska too and in, in Omaha and the suburbs came out and endorsed her Republican opponent, right? Like, you know, but, but those are all things that, that cannot be solved by the creation of an independent ballot line. Those are things that have to be solved by the creation of a independent party in the, the Marxist sense apparatus um, that, that we have to work on building. And, and you mentioned uh, having uh, Dustin Guastella and, 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 you know, I lean on, on his piece with Jared Abbott a lot in mine um, and talking about the, the way forward and the construction of the party surrogate and, and Seth Ackerman as well, talking about the, the new party that, you know, is agnostic about 
whether we break, whether we realign, whatever, like, you know, if, 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 and, and the, the kind of the way that I framed it that I think a lot of people have, have, have noted as, you know, kind of, kind of helpful for them is if we're at a point where we can break and be successful and not, you know, splinter off into another, you know, yet another party for freedom and socialism or, 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 or whatever they end up being called and, and, you know, listed at the end of every ballot. We're out of names too. That's a big issue, Brad. We got to talk about this. I mean, I, that, that's the other big issue. That's the biggest problem as far as I'm concerned is we can't, uh, we'll never get a website, a dot com, uh, with the gotta, absence of, of available names. <laughs> We gotta, we gotta get more creative. We gotta start, uh, start uh, naming our parties in, in with the ancient Greek, uh, yeah. like when you get, when you get to the end of hurricane season. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 yeah, but like what we, what we, uh, you know, what we talk about is, is you know, if we're at a point where we can break and be successful, then we're also at a point where we uh, have the the critical mass of the Democratic Party electorate to begin with. Sure. Um, so and, why, and why would so, we need to break if 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 our adversaries uh, are aren't able to force us out and, and render us, um, you know, useless? Uh, right. It, you know, you, interesting questions. You you can call it the Whig Party. I don't I don't give a shit at that point. If yeah. you know, if there's an American, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't. I don't know if you swear on this one. I, I course, apologize. Yeah, we we can do all, <laughs> all the swears. <laughs> all right. Um, but uh, but yeah, but I, I don't I don't care what it's called at that point. You know, because we're we're already winning material gains for working class people in this country. And that's what matters the most to, to me. That's what, what, what matters most to us as a caucus when we talk about electoral politics and so, yeah. There's a real kind of collective psychopathology that's playing out underneath here. And if you'll pardon me, Brad, I don't know, maybe I've been like listening to too many like fucking Ted talks or something, but like, <laughs> you know, I'm really diving in on this kind of like, you know, I don't know what we do with these call like self-help. I think it's a lot more sophisticated and interesting these days. Yeah. It's always like tarnished with a lot of like bootstrapism and other bullshit and like libertarian schemes to like go off the grid and be your own independent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, self-actualized, uh, you know, a self, but, but like, let's look at this really. It's, we're looking at a collective psychopathology. It's an identity crisis, isn't it? Because the, the concern then that always comes up is, well, how will they know that we're socialists? How will they know? How will we prevent ourselves from being co-opted? And there's this, and I get, I, I, I have those same voices, uh, those same concerns playing out in my head as I'm hearing what you're saying. The reality of that, it though, is, is there's no way to sort of, there's no way to ensure that at the outset ever, right? It's like, you know, like, how will I make him love me, you know, in 10 years? And it's like, well, there's nothing you can do right now that's going to ensure that, you know, he's going to love you in 10 years or that you're even going to want to be anywhere near him. And, to, you know, we, we all want these like assurances, don't we? And it, and it really does play out at the level of like interpersonal understandings of ourself in the world, doesn't it? And like, I don't know. I mean, maybe you didn't expect me to get all meta and like Deepak Chopra over here, but like, uh, I mean, we can't deny that the question of identity and distinguishing ourself from those around us inside the progressive left and the liberal left is incredibly important to us. And, And that seems at the heart of some of the debates, uh, you know, Neil Meyer wrote a piece for Bread and Roses is uh, the call about this, about how we need to sort of plant the flag and, and sort of uh, put our identity out there so that we can establish a, a pole of attraction. There's another uh, sort of uh, abstract phrase that gets thrown around a lot that I think is both useful and harmful. 
So talk about that. How do we maintain our identity? How do we prevent ourselves from just being subsumed and, oh God, the C word, co-opted, not that, yeah, co-opted in the movement? Yeah. What, one thing I think about there is, you know, from Matthew seven fifteen, you will know them by their fruits. Uh, you know that whole that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, one uh, kind of example from my own life that I think is is illustrative here is um, in the end of 2018, the Metro DC DSA endorsed candidate for county executive in Montgomery County on the the suburbs of Maryland. He won the Democratic primary by I want to say 77 votes, 76 votes maybe. So very narrowly, and and you know we were were clearly kind of the the coalition piece that that helped get that over the over the hump. And then in the general election, enough people in the business community and and kind of the basically everybody that I talked about in the the soft power party establishments uh, section were so frustrated by the idea that that they would be represented by this guy that they enticed a member of the county council to run as an independent. She had been a, a Democratic county council member for for decades, and they enticed her to to run as an independent for county executive. And this is a a small you know local office, and and you know they're 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 quite strong in Maryland, but it's a county, right? So when you ask, and and when people uh, we I, I served as field director on that campaign, and we won with sixty something percent of the vote, and the most votes ever cast in a, an election for that uh, for that office. But when you talk about and when uh, Neil talks about, you know, the the identity piece, you know, you will know us by our fruit, and in a lot of ways, you will know us by our enemies. You know, the business and and developer community in Montgomery County certainly knew who Mark Elrich was, and they knew what he stood for, even though he was the Democratic candidate for office that year. You know, led by. <laughs> This, this is fun. The Lee family, as in that Lee family. Um, Christ, I didn't know who, there was still a Lee family. That shouldn't shock me, though. Right. Who are, are still fantastically wealthy and, oh. uh, and and now on the other side of the Potomac. Robert E. Lee's um, wife was the one that had the wealth, if I'm not mistaken. Didn't he marry into money? Was that Correct. Was that? She was from the Custis family, I believe, yeah. um, which is a, you know, going back generations and generations in, mm. in, in Virginia um, with the, you know, the Randolphs and the balls and the Cusses and, yeah. and all of them. Yeah. All um, the, the, the roads and the, right. And you see those names all over park signs and government buildings. You just get in, it's inescapable. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but anyway, that, you know, that guy certainly knew who Mark was and, and what Mark stood for. Yeah. That's um, a good point. And, that's that's and, a really, really yeah. good point. You know, and how, how, do, how will we know what, how will people know the difference between us and them as our, our enemies will know. And and they do know, they definitely yeah. know. The, um, the, the, the Queens machine is another great example, how they, they coalesce to probably, I don't, you know, don't want to get sued, but probably just straight up steal the election for DA from, uh, from Tiffany Caban. They certainly knew who Tiffany Caban was. Yeah. And hypothetically and stolen. Uh, yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Stolen. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that 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 in a lot of ways, you know, you'll you'll know us by by our enemies. And and Neil, you know, talks about the the use of uniforms in in that piece a lot. He, he kind of uses that as as the central metaphor. And one thing that I I kind of responded with is, well, yeah, but like you know, in in the 1800s, everybody wore these bright colored uniforms, and and you know, everybody carried flags on the battlefields and and things like that. 
um, because that that worked for the way that you were fighting in the 1800s because you needed to keep rank and file order. You had to to fight in formation, and you know it was all that that very Frederick the Great kind of fighting. And then in World War One, the French put their army on the field with these bright blue uniforms with gold buttons and and red accents and stuff, and they get absolutely rinsed because that's not the way that we're fighting anymore. And then they adopt these these pale blue and and kind of grayish blue uniforms and move on to that. Now everybody wears camouflage, right? You know, we, we're still uniformed. We still, you know, believe in what we believe. We still wear the flag of the nation on the shoulder. And in this case, the, the nation being the, the, you know, the socialist movement. But, you know, we, but we adapt to the terrain that we're trying to fight on. Yeah, I mean, you, you extended that uh, metaphorical debate quite well, and I think you made a point that's interesting. But I guess my, my frustration is when the debate goes to metaphor. Um, yeah. I, I'll be honest, I, I, Neil, Neil's a good, smart guy, but I saw right. the piece and I was frustrated that it relied so heavily on metaphor when we're in a moment, not to say that he's wrong. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's got a point, but the, the style of the argumentation frustrates me when people lean so heavily on metaphor because we are in a moment right now where we don't really need that any longer. Uh, it, you know, I, I, for a guy that speaks almost entirely in metaphor, like this is a, this is a hell of a thing for me to say, cause I use metaphors <laughs> constantly <laughs> little, little Maoist self crit there. I'll, I'll, I'll flog myself in the jungle later uh, today, but, uh, uh, you know, we do, we do need to lean on, on kind of more practical things. And, and I'd like to see, I think, you know, and I think, I think they got the chops for it. So let's, let's, you know, let's do that. I hope this episode kicks it off. I hope people from BNR and elsewhere in DSA and on the left sort of take this as a challenge and in the best way possible to rise to the occasion so that we can get to something that most uh, closely approximates like success in the, in the coming five to 10 to to 30 to 50 years. And so let's get it going. Um, Some of the more finer points of your piece, I think are somewhat implicit, maybe implicit in the sense that it's, both outside and you know the purview of your piece, but also very much uh, required by it, which is that it's the organizational piece. CPN is very big on sort of redirecting or or maybe perhaps directing for the first time the collective organizational energies of the national organization into regional uh, and, and I would say maybe even state, local kinds of ways. And so, talk about how that works with this orientation to the democratic party, because sure, our, our enemies will know who we are, but how then do the individuals who are working, you know, in electoral politics, how do we remain active and accountable to broader organizational structures when as of right now, they don't really exist, do they? No. And, and not to, to put, you know, by, by talking about the organizational piece, you know, you definitely bring it back into the, the CPN bread and butter for sure. But, you know, I think that we're talking about things that, that don't exist now. And mm-hmm. is that where one, the fear comes from? Is the fear yeah. because right now this is solely just a question of just like um, personal character, like fortitude and and uh, and willpower. Right. Like we uh, su- such that, you know, not selling out, not being co-opted is, is a matter of, of just staying true personally rather than re- remaining, you know, uh, institutionally bound or accountable to larger structures. Perhaps that's where some of the concern comes from. Yeah. In, and, you know, you talked about earlier about the kind of the interplay of structure and agency. And, you know, certainly we want to elevate for office our own members. You know, that that is, you know, ultimately what we're, we want to work towards is having a, 
member to legislator pipeline, essentially, and, you know, getting getting our own people that come from the movement into office. I don't think that we're there. You know, we're, we're not there in, in Metro DC DSA yet. I don't I don't know if we're there in, in, in other chapters. But that is ultimately, you know, the correct orientation toward electoral politics is, is elevating people from the movement. But, yeah, you know, there are, there are barriers to, to doing that. And that's kind of the, the agency piece. But the structure piece I, I consider a lot more important. And part of that is, you know, the things that politicians care about are retaining their seat. And they're often very single minded in that way. And as as I mentioned with um, with Yellowridge race, you know, we were we were certainly the the piece of the coalition that that moved it from a losing race to a winning race. We got to be that for every race that we get involved in. We can't be kind of the voter guide that, you know, the the most progressive folks can pick up and, and you know, want to make their ballot match and, and things like that. You know, we need to be the centerpiece of every campaign that we endorse so that, you know, uh, the threat of and the idea of withholding our support means that you're likely to lose that seat upon re-election. Unless, you know, you, you totally sell out and, and you know, you, you go all the way in and the, the establishment takes you in, which they often will not because, you know, to them, any Democrat is interchangeable with any Democrat. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that, and I, I link it in the piece there at the very end where, uh, where I link on the word victory to the piece that John from Twin Cities DSA uh, was the, the primary author of, um, but he led a lot of electoral efforts here in D.C. and, and has uh, just gotten the Twin Cities uh, electoral working group up, up and running and, and professionalized that a lot, where he talks about, you know, kind of the, the conditions under which we engage in electoral work, the conditions that have to be present in order us, for us to even consider engaging in electoral work and, and things like that. And, and yeah, and I think part of that is building our own independent I, I, when 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 somebody asks like i kind of told them like you know consider the idea of like a uh, justice democrats but that is member funded democratic and you know that, that we have control over and and you know and it's independent i don't i don't want to say consulting but like the services that consultants offer that is democratic run by the membership you know they're not going to craft your message to be you know, for a, a, a donor audience or, or, or anything like that, that interacts and works closely with labor in particular, because there's there's no path to the party surrogate that I talk about, that Dustin Cosell and, and Jared Abbott, or that, that Seth Ackerman talked about, that is not, you know, primarily focused on an orientation and relationship with labor. And then, yeah, and that, you know, often leads to independent media and things like that. You know, your your show, for example, you know, making sure that these are all things that are circulated, consumed and and dealt with. You know, the, the, there's a reason that kind of one of the first things that the Bolsheviks did before they were in the Bolsheviks was make Iskra. And, you know, all of these things, it, it, it's so important to uh, uh, make sure that we're building that out. And we're not there yet. We're far from it. But I think that our orientation needs to be not toward as Jane Slaughter and and who you know I want to say I respect a ton and and who is you know put more blood sweat blood sweat and tears into the labor and 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 socialist movement than you know than certainly I have as a you know 25 year old dude but you know where she talks about you know the orientation needing to be toward outwardly toward a a new ballot line you know I I disagree and I think that our orientation needs to be inward toward 
bigger, better, and stronger organizational structures that allow us to compete with the party establishment that I talk about in peace. The kids, they got ideas. They got ideas. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you're not wrong. I mean, as a guy in his mid thirties and Jane being uh, up there, even far more experienced than I, yeah, I mean, it's uh, wild, but I will say, you know, 2017 as a Lee Carter, uh, you know, one in Virginia and a bunch of mm-hmm. other people won across the country and, you know, that was one of the first things I said is, my God, uh, we're winning stuff, but where where the fuck is this sort of institutional support? It's always la- It always lags right. behind, doesn't it? And I'm right. impatient, Brad. I am. That's one of my faults. I'm very impatient, but it is nice to see that there are other people outside of my head uh, who are thinking <laughs> much more seriously and actually doing something about it instead of just uh, spouting about it on a microphone. Uh, you know, uh, everybody has their role to play, but uh, it's, it's never going to get done uh, my way. Uh, <laughs> not by podcasting about it. Somebody's got to get out there and, and put their feet to the street. So I am glad that it's happening. And I hope that, you know, I mean, really, I this isn't about, I mean, I, I happen to find a lot of what you're saying compelling, but that shouldn't come as a surprise because again, <laughs> episode one, uh, three and right. a half years ago was Seth Ackerman. And I've had um, Dustin and uh, Jared Abbott on, you know, multiple times to talk about this stuff. And, and I've talked about my vision, something that, you know, I got, I got some DMS about this. I don't get DMS anymore. Cause people are like, Oh, I know Adam. He's, he's sort of <laughs> fucking boring and repetitive. And I already know what he's going to say before he says it. He's a broken record, but I got a couple DMS on this one and I shared it. It's by, um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep the source a secret. Just only just out All of, right. uh, just, um, I'm sure I could say so, but I won't. Uh, we'll, we'll be mysterious here. Because I was having a beer uh, a year ago, year two ago, with this individual and a couple other people, and we were sort of getting a little drunk on uh, Budweisers, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And uh, you know, the beer of the working class, of course. And uh, <laughs> I only drink Bud Heavy when I'm a socialist because it's bad for my waistline. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to look like a I don't want to look like you know a posh boy and like you know drink a light beer and around a bunch of like labor radicals. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, gotta, the, I gotta the, keep my <laughs> the waistline ship sailed for me long ago, but <laughs> you know good, I mean? good that you're hanging on. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, but uh, drinking Bud Heavies. And we sort of t- start talking about, I talk about my frustration about the, the socialist media ecosystem and how, and I still do. And again, I'm friends with all the people and it's no hate intended, but I do think, you know, it's, it's very poorly coordinated. It's a, it's like a free market for fuck's sake. And I don't know, last time I checked, we, we know those are very bad. Uh, you know, they have a lot of negative um, sort of consequences uh, for a lot of things. And, you know, there's very little um, coordination and, and, and planning in the, in the socialist media ecosystem, which I've always found to be very uh, frustrating and dispiriting at times. And and so he starts uh, talking about this vision that he has for DSA as a national organization. It's integrated from top to bottom and it's, you know, got active and militant locals and regional organizations. And you've got to, you know, and somewhere uh, pick any, you know, city in, in the country, hopefully one with a low cost of living and, uh, low property values. Uh, if, if some rich benefactor wants to like leave us a high rise, that'd be great. Like a six story building. Right. And he, he laid out all of what would be on every story, right? The first story would be like, you know, bookstore, socialist coffee shop bar, like for the, for the masses, right. People to interface, you know, physically with the organization and our politics, our people, we'd have meeting spaces, you know, going up into the second floor, you know, where, you know, people could have meet up and, and do their thing. And then, Somewhere like the 
fourth floor there, you know, third floor would be like, you know, our offices, you know, we want to be close to the people like the elected, uh, you know, leadership, the staffers and then fourth floor, you'd have like a socialist media. Right. And so he's like, yeah, you and, you know, uh, Brooks when back when, uh, Michael was still with us and, uh, Chapo, maybe y'all are probably too big for this, but you know, uh, obviously Dan Denver and, and some of the other types, you know, would be located there. And, and you, you know, YouTube, you know, none of us were on YouTube at the time. And why not? Why the fuck aren't we on you? Hell, now it'd be like TikTok, right? Like bring the kids in, bring the Gen Zers and the YDSA types and have them make TikToks and uh, about socialism. And, uh, you know, and then and, and he's just going up to the top of, of the of the organization. And it'd be very vertically integrated. And I mean, that's that's the kind of party apparatus that that um, like damn near toppled global capitalism in like the 1920s and 30s, you know, in Europe. You know, uh, for all of the limitations that social, you know, the second international had, that's the kind of apparatus that they possessed. It's the kind of apparatus that had the capitalist class shaking in their fucking boots that spawned the kind of reaction that we saw in the early part of the 20th century that is often overlooked and forgotten. So, I'll, yeah, anyway, that's enough of a wind up out of me. I'll give you a chance to kind of wrap up and. And, and throw out some uh, a couple more things that maybe we didn't get around to um, give a rallying cry, whatever you'd like. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that, that, that kind of wrap up um, because that, that is, you know, what, what we talk about a lot is um, both in the piece and, and as CPN is, is, you know, building the strong structures um, our our caucus chair, Olivia um, from Cincinnati uh, wrote a piece that that got a lot of attention as well. That that you know to win the future, DSA needs stronger structures. Um, and I would would definitely encourage you know folks to check that out as well um, on uh, on the organizer because yeah, I think that that you know we're we're aligned on that is the things like that and 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 you talk about you know socialist media for example being a free market of sorts. Um, you know the things that rise to the top in that free market are the things that offer catharsis. You know, the, the, the things that, you know, it, it, it feels good to, you know, use Chapo as an example a couple of times. It feels good to, you know, tune on and, and listen to them be funny and, and rip on people and, and do stuff like that. Um, because that, that is often, you know, catharsis is often an expression of powerlessness um, where, you know, I, I, I may not be able to topple the king, but I can make fun of him for being a fat load or whatever. Um, and I, I mean, and, I'm not going to speak for you. I, like I need yeah. that. I want that. Right? Oh, like, absolutely. I, I do. Yeah. But I think what you're about to say is that it, that gets that that tends to suck up all the oxygen in the room. Yeah, it, it it can do that. But but you know, I think that that you know we as organizers shouldn't be in the business of offering catharsis. We should be in the business of of heightening contradictions and you know giving people the the tools to build a better future rather than you know simply the comfort of laughing at the trash one that we currently live in um and and yeah i think that that you know the the ballot line question is another expression of catharsis you know it, it would feel really good to be a small organization that you know runs gloria Riva for president and you know and we get our you know seven thousand votes out of la county and you know walk around talking about how we're the seven thousand you know, most pure and, and best people on the planet because, you know, we, we did the right thing. Um, but, but that didn't feed a kid. It didn't give a guy a weekend. It didn't, you know, uh, 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 contribute to, to the liberation of women or queer folks or, or anything. 
And that if we're going to actually meaningfully do that, if we're going to deliver materialism, not not just metaphor, um, also a, a, a piece in the organizer, we, we got these all stacked up for y'all. Um, but um, uh, uh, but if we're going to if we're going to deliver that, then we need to uh, engage with the reality as it exists now. Um, Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. That's OK. I mean that's that, good. This, we need this. God yeah. damn it. We need uh people to come out in the open and a comradely and friendly and even just kind of a funny sort of loving ribbingly sort of ribbingly sure why not we're going to rib each other uh sort of way to talk about our differences and there just isn't enough of that and again i think it's probably you're right uh we we're the socialist media ecosystem is we're we're all trapped inside the hell world that was created by the daily show and in the late in the late uh you know 20th very late 20th century uh, into into the war on terror and bu- the Bush years just only heighten that. And as much as we right. are cognizant and aware of that dynamic, we're still trapped in it. Right. Um, yeah. I, we I, you know I, I in, know the boys on Chapo and certainly Amber are well aware of that limitation. And absolutely. Yet they are yeah. completely trapped in in that world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 you know they're fun and 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 I enjoy you know listening as well. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the Bush era, like, you know, we had the, the biggest protests of any kind in world history were in opposition to the Iraq war. And yet it still happened. You know, my 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 father's an Iraq war veteran. He spent four years in Iraq. Um, you know, it, it, it still happened. And and, you know, feeling like we can't change and, and, and influence and, and, you know, make material differences. Yeah, leads 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 to catharsis and and i think that the the you know wanting a new ballot line is is an expression of that larger problem absolutely so again you know shots may be fired but i hope they i hope they're taken in good faith and and in good spirit and that uh you know some of the people that we talked about will come on the show on 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 this american left and uh and defend themselves against all charges no i'm kidding and uh yeah give their side of the story and, and fill out this debate because i really do believe in uh, I'm I'm of the dialectic, Brad. I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> as our uh, as famed Senator uh, Kennedy uh, proclaimed uh, several weeks ago. I'm of the dialectic. He loves it. I'm of it. I'm not sure what he said, but uh, we were definitely of the dialectic here on DPS. And I do believe that mm-hmm. putting smart people in conversation will produce the best possible outcomes. And so, thanks very much for contributing to that. I will link to the relevant pieces in the show notes. Brad Chester, come back on DPS anytime. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks so much. And that concludes today's episode of DPS. Thanks again to Brad Chester and all of his comrades over there at the Collective Power Network for enlightening us today on their views. I was, like I said, I mean, I, I, I was convinced and by a lot of things. Now, I think there are some weaknesses in that approach that upon listening to it again, when I went back and edited to this interview, I would have, would have liked to have asked some pointed follow-up questions, but this is what the dialectic is all about folks. Um, the back and forth, you know, learning each step along the way, developing and sharpening our arguments, all of us together in this thing, in this thing called socialism. So uh, I look forward to having Brad back on the show at some point, maybe some of his comrades from CPN to elaborate on some of the things that we were only able to gloss over. As I mentioned in the the extended intro to today's episode, I have some really phenomenal 
uh, people lined up uh, in the next coming weeks. Uh, of course, James Schneider over there in the UK, he is going to be a very exciting guest. I've been looking forward to having him on the program for a long time. So I was thrilled when he agreed to come on to talk about this new series he published at Novara. Of course, friend of the show, Sam Gennon, is going to be coming back to elaborate on some of the themes that we were only able to gloss over when he came on to talk about the life and legacy of Leo Panitch. And we're going to be digging especially into the kind of highfalutin political economy of the 1970s, the profit squeeze, the structural transformations of capital and all the rest of it across the globe that led to our current malaise, economic and political and otherwise. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that. All right, everybody, I appreciate your support as always. If you enjoyed this program and you want to see more like it, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a patron today. We are in the doldrums of the Biden administration, my friends, but that does not mean that we cannot make a significant number of gains. It looks like Bernie Sanders and AOC and Ed Markey and some of these other folks have signed on to a updated bill for uh, the Green New Deal. And I'm seeing some early reports that some of uh, the coal unions, uh, trade unions are are warming up to the idea. They've even signed on some of them. I'll have to look into that more specifically as uh, time goes on, but it looks like we are making a lot of progress towards building a coalition that can actually get across some meaningful legislation to try to combat uh, climate crisis and the impending economic uh, collapse that is absolutely upon us. Uh, Make no mistake, we are in the midst of a structural crisis of capital that cannot be resolved given the tinkering at the margins and the bullshit instruments that the ruling class has at its disposal. We need a fundamental transformation of our political economy. And uh, it looks like that Bernie Sanders and his crew are up to the task. This is exciting stuff, but we are nonetheless in the doldrums of a liberal administration. I'm going to try to keep you all excited and enthused in the meantime about meaningful socialist advance. Uh, I'll do I'll do the best I can. Uh, some weeks it's going to be easier than others. But uh, anyway, same time, same place next week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you.